Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, everybody. Today's episode is brought to you by TweakedAudio.com, purveyor of fine earbuds and headphones. If you need some new earbuds or headphones, go to TweakedAudio.com and get 33% off of any purchase when you enter the promo code OTHERPEOPLE, O-T-H-E-R-P-P-L. Get 33% off of any purchase at TweakedAudio.com. Tweaked Audio. These are earbuds. These are headphones. You can listen to things with them. Go and get some. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listing. Just one All person, right. just one All right, time. everybody, here we go. This <laughs> right. is uh, Other People. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. It's nice to be with you. How are you feeling? Are you feeling all right? It's a weird time. It's a weird era. It's a weird uh, situation we find ourselves in. We're through the looking glass in America. If you haven't been paying attention, I feel the need to talk about this. What's happening with Donald Trump, what's happening uh, with his cabinet, what's happening with Russia, this is all beyond belief. It's extremely grim. And to see people out like Christmas shopping while all of this is going on, like, does anybody else out there feel disoriented by this? It's truly dystopian. We have a president uh, elect who was put into office with the help of Russia and Vladimir Putin, who's not a good person and whose interests are at odds with our interests, and whose values are at odds with the best American values. And, you know, who, who knows how much money Donald Trump owes Vladimir Putin and his bankers, because Donald Trump won't release his tax returns. So we don't know what kind of leverage Vladimir Putin has over Donald Trump. And... You know, I don't know everything, but I know that the Russians hacked the DNC, the Democratic National Committee. Looks like they also hacked the RNC, but didn't release, uh, you know, the RNC emails. So they were clearly trying to tilt the thing in favor of their Manchurian candidate. That's the world we're living in now. That's what's happening in our country. And I have a feeling it's going to be a lot darker when all of the all of the dust is settled, when all of this you know shakes out over the course of history, 
And when the actual history of this is finally uncovered, I think it's going to be even worse than we think. That's my feeling. We're dealing with very bad actors. And, you know, it makes me think too, you know, like it's, it's kind of an obvious thing to say, but, you know, Russians are good at chess. I was talking about this with a buddy of mine last night. Russians, you know, notoriously good at chess. They're very strategic in their thinking. They're also crafty when it comes to espionage and this sort of thing. So it's like, yeah, you, you hack the DNC emails, you release the emails uh, that favor your Manchurian candidate, but you also hack the RNC emails and you use those emails as leverage because Trump's not going to be able to uh, legislate or enact any kind of uh, agenda unless you can get the, the bureaucrats to go along. And the way that you get some of the bureaucrats to go along is you have leverage over them with emails. Guys like Reince Priebus, Kellyanne Conway, Steve Bain, you know what I'm saying? Like, it just all seems fucking dark and fishy and completely through the looking glass crazy. And the cabinet, nothing but white guys. Like the cabinet is basically nothing but uh, white guys who hate government. Like every single, uh, you know, every single cabinet appointment, you know, you're putting what Rick Perry as the head of the department of energy, Texas led the country in carbon emissions when he was the governor in, in charge of the EPA is a guy who, you know, can't stand the environmental protection agency, like an oil man from Oklahoma. The guy at state is, has received the order of friendship from Vladimir Putin and is the uh, CEO of Exxon, a giant oil company with massive profits at stake in Russia that sort of depend upon the melting of the polar ice. You know, it's just, it's fucked up. And to see life carrying on in a semi-normal fashion while all of this is going on is very disorienting for me. And yet, like, what do you do? What do you do? You got to talk about it, though. That's what I think. I'm talking about it on this show. Not going to keep my mouth shut. Just like hum a Christmas Carol while I'm on Amazon.com. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books.
My guest today is Jason Diamond. Uh, had a really good time talking with him. He, he came by when he was out here on tour. He's got a new memoir out. It's called Searching for John Hughes. It's available now from William Morrow Paperbacks. And uh, just a good guy. Been through a lot. Has written a, a book that's uh, really heartfelt and funny. And uh, just really enjoyed meeting him. He's also uh, the, the mastermind behind Volume 1 Brooklyn, for those of you familiar with that uh, website. A good literary citizen and very happy for him, uh, you know, to see him having this success with his book. So without any further ado, here's my conversation, uh, my conversation with Jason Diamond and his book one more time is called Searching for John Hughes. You know, I grew up in the, in the, in the Chicagoland suburbs and, um, I, uh, when I was a kid, I had baby, I had a babysitter who brought some of his movies and it was like, I don't want to watch this. I want to see the Karate Kid or Ghostbusters for the 14th time. And you know, she's like, just give it a chance. Let's watch it. You know, she wanted to watch it. You can, I think playing it back in my head, I can tell, but, uh, I was, I just loved it. And, um, I just, wait, which one was it? 16 uh, Candles? It was or? Pretty in Pink. Pretty in Pink. Um, and then 16 Candles was like right around the same time. I mean, I might mix up the, it might've been reverse, but you know, it was like around 86. So, um, pretty in pink i'm pretty sure but yeah i mean ferris came right after that and i didn't realize it was the same guy but i was like hey it's another movie in chicago um he created in like a like a quartet or maybe even like a you know how many movies did he make that are sort of a well there's the teen trilogy that's the teen trilogy that he directed wrote and produced and that's 16 candles breakfast club and ferris right uh he wrote and produced uh, some kind of wonderful, which I think is just really like the overlooked gem of his movies. Um, and he did uh pretty in pink, which he didn't direct. Um, and a few other ones, but those were kind of like the, uh, the, the, the big ones. It's amazing. Yeah. It I is. mean, for, especially for people of our generation, I mean, it really is like the mythology of adolescence yeah. and it, it's sticky. Um, the only thing I can think about because I have a lot of affection for those movies. They're the movies of my youth, but some of the, uh, racial humor in them hasn't, hasn't aged well, like the no. long duck dong character and, uh, 16 candles. Like that's you know, there's some of that stuff where you're like, wow, that's really in poor taste. Yeah. I mean, I actually talk about that a little bit in the book. Um, you know, like when you're a little kid, you're like, you don't, you, you're not really, you're just like, that's it's supposed to be comedy. So you just laugh at everything. And as I got older, I was like, Ooh, that's really, I mean, there's also like the Jake Ryan, uh, let's, let's get, you know, I can get her drunk and violate her any which way. Yeah. And I mean, it's, there's also like the underrepresentation of, you don't see any black people or mm -hmm. Asian people or, you know, Ferris Bueller is played by a Jew, but you don't see many, you don't see any Jewish characters, but I tell people, you know, growing up in those suburbs as a Jewish kid, there weren't, you know, I was one of like three Jewish kids in my neighborhood. Um, so it was kind of, but Chicago has a lot of, uh, Jewish people, doesn't it? In certain, yeah. certain places or the, the town I was born in, uh, Skokie, Illinois, which is what I claim is my hometown, even though I didn't like, I spent like maybe like seven years there as a kid. Uh, after at some point after the war, the second world war, it had like the third largest population of Holocaust survivors. It was like Israel, New York and Skokie. <laughs> okay. Um, and I don't know how that happened. It's just this sort of like weird thing that it was enough of a suburb that wasn't like the, the waspier suburbs that Jews could kind of get out of the city and get into there, I think. And, uh, it's a weird place. Um, when I was a kid, you could definitely kind of feel that, 
sort of, you could kind of feel the, I don't know, I don't know what you would say, but you could kind of, you could, you'd see people with numbers on their arms all the time. And, um, there's a lot of memorial, there's a memorial to the Holocaust there. And, you'd you see know. people with like the tattooed numbers. Oh yeah. I mean, my grandparents were Holocaust survivors. Um, they didn't have my, I think my grandma did. I, she died when I was really young. So I don't remember my grandfather didn't, but I mean, the woman who cut my hair had him, Jesus. um, everywhere you went, you know, in Skokie, you'd see him. So it was pretty heavy. Did you know that? And Matthew Broderick's Jewish. Yes. Did yeah, you know that as a kid when you were watching Ferris Bueller? I think I could sense that. I, I want to say I actually saw, um, I want to say I saw Biloxi blues and yeah, I can kind of, I think maybe around the same time. And I think it was maybe my dad mentioned it or I could, you can tell, I mean, you know, I grew up around pretty much when I was a little kid, it was, everyone was Jewish. And then all of a sudden everyone wasn't, everyone was waspy and old money, which was really weird. But I think I could tell, uh, Jennifer gray, same thing. And she's, you know, she's great in that movie. Wait. Oh, oh yeah. And Ferris Bueller. I was yeah. thinking dance or dirty dancing, but she's also Ferris's sister, right? Yeah. Which with, yeah, she's Ferris's sister and they were also dating at the time, but with dirty dancing, I remember seeing that when I was like seven and being like, this is a Jewish movie. I get this. <laughs> yeah, right. Like they don't talk about it, but you can kind of tell. Yeah. So, um, you, you get infected with the bug. You love these films. Um, it's also your terrain. I mean, the films are set in, uh, Chicago suburbs, sort mm-hmm. of like posh, you know, Chicago suburbs. And I, you know, I think part of like, I have an affinity for Kurt Vonnegut or like a real, like deep affection for him. I have a real deep affection for David Letterman, yeah. both of whom are from Indianapolis. Yeah, yeah. So like when, when somebody who makes art that really moves you comes from the place that you come from, I think it sort of doubles the effect or deepens the effect, gives you a sense of possibility maybe, or did, did it do that for you? Did it, did it matter to you? Like, Oh, this guy's fr- you know, from these parts, these movies are set here. Did it make it seem possible to you that you could tell stories? Oh, absolutely. I mean, when I started placing that, it was the same guy doing those movies. And when I started realizing like it was also home alone was his and which, you know, I mean, I was nine or 10 when home alone came out and I'm like, that's literally down the street from my house. Like that house I used to pass by going to go, go pick up a kid to play hockey with. And, you know, to see your backyard represented on, on film that way. And, you know, this is even before I realized it was like this, this man's world, this guy's idea of a world. Um, but before I even can tell that I would, you know, I was like, wow, my, my where I'm from, this boring place, um, can be kind of cool and beautiful and, you know, no, it's normal as normal as it gets, I guess, quote unquote normal. But, uh, it really kind of gave me this idea that, you know, you can take the suburbs and turn it into something. Um, who's the most relatable character for you in Hughes films? Was there a character that you felt was like a corollary for how you were at least in, in an interior way? Or is there a character that you had like sort of hero worship for uh, the two? I think the one I really wanted, I mean, obviously I would have loved to have looked like Jake Ryan. He's, he's quite a handsome dude. Um, but I, I also really, you know, I was, I was trying to explain this to somebody the other day, but I remember when I saw pretty in pink, the thing that really struck me was how cool Molly Ringwald's character was, even though she was like the poor girl and everyone kind of picked on her and she was like, whatever, I don't care about this. And I, you know, when you're a kid and I think this is, they're trying to reverse this and they're trying to stop this, but boys are supposed to have boy heroes. Girls are supposed to have girl heroes. Blue is boy. Pink is girl. And 
I never really felt that way. I didn't care. Like I, I, I'm like girls, boys, it's all. And I was really taken aback by how cool she was. And I was like, man, I hope one day I can be like, you know, if people give me crap, I can just sort of float above it like that. But did it work out? No, (laughs) no, no. The one I, the one I relate to the most is Allison from the breakfast club. Um, which is what that's Ali Sheedy. Yeah. Ali Sheedy. Uh, and she, you know, it's, she's like the weird goth teen. I was angry punk kid, but you know, the thing I like about her is that she's kind of more layered than you really give her credit for because she, at the end is just like, I want to, you know, I want to be noticed. And I think we all sort of want to be noticed when we're teens in one way, even if we don't say we do. We want people, you know, we want friends. We want our parents to talk to us. We want something. Um, and you kind of get that from her. She's a much deeper character than I think just the goth kid. There's but, something really moving about how, like when Molly Ringwald puts makeup on her and there's like that scene. Yeah, I don't know. Like at the end, you, that's where it sort of, uh, if I'm remembering the movie correctly, that's like sort of where it's revealed that she does want those things. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I know there's a lot of people who don't like the way they did that with like, right. She now has to be like the pretty girl with them. I know. And I get that. But like, I also do kind of see it as just like, it's a guy writing it. So that's how a guy I think would see it, unfortunately. Uh But I do think if there is something to be said there about like teens just want to fit in somehow. And, uh, it took me a long time to kind of realize how badly I wanted to fit in and that (laughs) acting like I didn't want to fit in actively acting like I didn't want to fit in was sort of my way of being like, yeah. So what you said you were an angry punk. Like what was your childhood? Like what kind of kid sounds like you were an angry kid? Um, yeah. I mean, my parents got divorced when I was really young. Um, you know, there were a lot of problems with my, my, my dad was, uh, pretty, pretty nasty. Um, you know, he drank a lot. Uh, I was really terrified of my father and my mom, you know, was pretty distant uh, I think she was younger than my dad and wasn't ready for the responsibility of having to raise, you know, the kids on her own. How many kids were there? Uh, there was two, my sister and I, and, um, you know, going back and forth between the two houses all the time and custody fights and lawyers when you're a kid. And like, you know, I had, I still actually have ADHD, which is kind of funny. I still have it. Um, I found out like two years ago. Uh, I thought maybe I shed it, but, um, you know, they use that as like, oh, this is something we can use in court. You know, that would be given different medications. And uh, eventually my dad lost visitation rights with me when I was 12. Because of his drinking? Uh, he he used to hit, he hit me a lot. I actually write about it in the book. But he uh, kind of went overboard and broke a rib, my nose, and uh, what is it? Something, uh, a kidney, bruised my kidney. And my mom took... My mom took me to the, uh, to the police. It was a whole, whole deal. And, um, I didn't see him again until I was 18. And so, you know, like 12 years old, you're just starting to kind of, you're just about to enter crappy teen phase. And so you combine all that. And I just, you know, I started getting into punk rock when I was like 13. I was looking for anything. Right. My mom was ready to move to another new town. So. Yeah, I was pretty angry. I was pretty upset. It was pretty sad. It was a mix of a lot of things. Did you, I mean, but you, you know, you're 12, you're 13. Like how, how much awareness can you have of what's going on inside of you and how you're responding to something like that? Did you have any therapy or anything? Oh yeah, I had tons of therapy, but, uh, you know, the, the more I think about that therapy and, it, and 
you know, it was literally like there were weeks where I'd go to a doctor and I thought it was, you know, you're told, tell them everything. And then you're like, okay, cool. This is my doctor. This is the person I'm going to be talking to. So I'm going to tell them everything. And then the next week there's a new doctor. And that was kind of my life as a kid. It was like a sort of like a weird parade of doctors. And, you know, my mom was pro drugs like Ritalin and whatnot. My dad was anti, you know, they both had different ideas and did he get sober? Um, I don't know. Uh, we, we kind of started talking again when I was about 18. Um, when I was in school, when I was starting college, uh, and then he, um, then we had another falling out and I think things got really bad for him for a while. Uh, my stepmother is Peruvian. She came into my life when I was like three and, uh, apparently he had to be put into a, like a, a Peruvian rehabilitation facility, which I guess is really bad. Jesus. Uh, I don't know. What does that st- mean? Like down in Peru? He's... Yeah, he was down in Peru. They had moved to Peru after he retired. And I think things just got kind of out of control. I don't know the whole story. He emailed me some crazy thing once, um, on Facebook. And, uh, yeah, I think, I think he's doing better. My little brother, who is literally the only family member I talked to, uh, in my, at all. Um, he told me he's doing better. So, so wait, didn't you had, you had a, it was just you and your brother? No, uh, he's my step, sorry, my half brother. Okay. And so, uh, when he married my stepmom, they had two more kids and, um, you know, they're like eight and 10 years younger than I am. I like them. We get along. We talk. Um, I don't really talk to my, my half sister, but it's cause she's in Peru. So right. My little brother's in Florida. So I talk to him pretty often, but you don't talk to your mom. No. So my mom, when I was six, when I was just turning 16, uh, my mom decided she wanted to leave Chicago and she, um, literally the word, the exact phrase, I, if I recall it right, was, um, I'm moving. You can go with me, but I rather you didn't. So I just kind of spent the next few years just sort of living with friends, living wherever I could. And yeah, we taught, we, you know, kept in touch cause I think legally she had to, cause she was still getting, uh, child support for my father. So she had to know where I was. And then, um, by 18, we just stopped talking, just lost contact for a few years and didn't talk till I was like 23 or 24. And then tried to start up again. You know, she came to my wedding. That was nice. And then last five years, we haven't seen each other or talked very much. It's, I've pretty much spent over half my life not talking to one or both of my parents. That's sad. Yeah. That's tough, man. I'm sorry. Yeah. But, you know, uh, I was reading, I want to say it was Instagram. Like it was like some sort of statement you made where you were talking about how difficult uh, your childhood had been and how you'd had teachers or a teacher oh, yeah. talk about how you weren't going to amount to much. Yeah. And like now here you are with the book out. Yeah. When I was nine, I remember that exactly. My, my mom coming home and telling me that a teacher said I was going to be in jail by 21. And she was like, scared. that freaked her out. She was like, so you got to shape up, you know? And, <laughs> and that always stuck with me. Like a lot of the things I heard adults say to me, you know, and I wasn't, I wasn't a good kid. I was, bouncing off the walls. So I was, how could you not, how could you not be? Yeah. Right. You know, and then once, you know, my teens happened, I was like, it's weird. Cause I was a good student. I was always really smart. I could just get through school and I knew like I had to do that. Um, but I just, I would go out and when I was like 16 and get wasted on the weekends with my friend, I go to a punk show and just drink two forties. Um, 
yeah and smoke a lot of pot and thrash yeah <laughs> thrash um but yeah i just i don't know it's just, it's it, it was weird i was thinking about that after the book release and i was like you know i understand that teachers have to you know say certain things but that always stuck with me and yeah, it was just like you know it's taking a very low view of a nine-year-old. Yeah, it is. Right. I was, I was a pretty rotten nine-year-old though. So, yeah. I mean, I guess maybe it was like done out of some sense of caring like wanting to prevent some sort of bad scenario from happening by catching it early. But Jesus, you know, that's, that's actually the, one of the weird things about John Hughes, that John Hughes movies kind of taught me or at least put in my head that sometimes I think it's actually some of these, I, I have the, my, my wife's a teacher of the utmost respect for teachers, but I think there are some that you know, just like any other job. I mean, with writers and editors, you see it with everything, but there are just some that just burn out and they don't like what they're doing. And, um, what else do they have that they can do? And, you know, I think it was, it was an older teacher. He was like in his fifties, I remember. And, um, you know, I, I think he was just, he just hated what he was doing and that was just his way of dealing with it. Yeah. Um, and it's kind of the, you know, I mean, maybe that is the movies that taught me that, but it is something I've kind of held on to, and it's, when people have authority of some sort, you know, they hold on to it and they use it in any way they can. And, uh, yeah. So how do you survive? I mean, like I had that, like I come from, uh, a different kind of childhood. I was sort of like, I lucked out, you know, um, with my parents and the way that I was raised in terms of like, just like stability and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and so, I think about somebody who had to go through all that you you had to go through as a child, as a child. I mean, like you know, it's hard enough to go through heavy stuff as an adult, yeah. but to do it when you are powerless, when you are living under, um, you know, the direction or the, the rule of authority figures, you know, like it's especially traumatic. Uh, how, how have you managed to survive and become, um, a productive adult and, you know, have a healthy relationship? You screw up a lot. You know, that's the thing you, 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 you screw up a lot and you kind of have to be able to live with that along the way. Um, cause I, you know, I tell people who knew me when I was 19, 20, 21. Now when I see them, I'm like, I'm really sorry. I was terrible, but it was like arrested development or something. I was still this like 16 year old kid, but you like know, how did you screw up? You know, I got no, I would not pay rent or I'd, you know, just bail on girls that I was dating or, you know, just crappy yeah. things we all kind of do probably in our lives at some point, but I just couldn't stop doing that kind of stuff, you know? And what about substance abuse? Like, um, uh, because you have a father who struggled with alcohol, like that can be something that passes down. Have you ever had any problems there? No, I've done my fair share of drugs, but I've always actually been pretty, pretty good about it. Um, I, you know, I live in New York, so I drink a lot with my friends. I go out and drink, but I don't like get blackout drunk. Right. You know, um, no, not really. It's weird. I, I, th- I mean, you can skip generation. I, I like, I don't want to talk with too much authority about no, it, no. but I mean, there is like a genetic component. Absolutely. And I've seen it. I mean, I know it firsthand. One of my, I lost one of my friends to it and, uh, it runs rampant in his family, but other siblings didn't get it. Just, it just depends. It's sort of like the luck of the draw. It's maybe it's little bit of nature, some nurture, you know, who knows exactly what the formula is, but I think a lot, a lot of it's neuroses because I also don't want to get addicted. So I tell myself, don't do anything that can get you in deep trouble. Um, never did heroin. Yeah. You know, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> um, yeah. me neither. Oh yeah. I've always been like very careful. Um, 
Yeah, so neuroses kind of is, is it's a good it's a good it's a good survival thing. Well, I was just going to say, you know, I've talked to people on this show before who come from like a, you know, difficult backgrounds or who have you know really endured a lot of uh, trauma in their lives, and every single one of them, I feel like has really good survival instincts. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. see, and, and like the thing about it, the, the real tragedy of it is that I think you know there are some people who go through really difficult traumas and experiences in their youth and they don't have those. Yeah. <laughs> they don't have that, those survival instincts or they don't have their wits about them or school doesn't come easily or, you know, were there any adults in your life, um, who were mentors to you, who were sort of there as lifeboats for you? You had to have had someone. Yeah, I definitely, I mean, uh, I had a teacher, an English teacher who could tell what was going on and she let me come live with her. And so like, that's how I kind of kept my head above water for like the most important part, like, like the college application process and trying to do all that stuff. But she was, you know, she, I, her, she told me, she's like, you need to put faith in people. And, you know, up until that point I had zero faith in people. You know, I mean, I remember when I was a kid, when I was like 10, uh, the courts sent lawyers to both my parents' houses to talk, to see what the, the deal was like, not lawyers, um, social workers. Sure. And, you know, they were like, we promise your parents will find out what you say. And I was like, okay. And so they would ask me, my mom's house, what do you think of your dad? And my dad's house, what do you think of your mom? Two weeks later, three weeks later, they had all the trans, they had all the paperwork and all the things I had said. So I just did not trust anybody. They screwed you. Yeah. And from that moment on, like, I remember like just being like, there's just no way I'm trusting anybody. You know, it's me and me and my own. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, having that one teacher, having certain friends, parents, you know, who would let me stay at their houses multiple times without asking or without seeming judgmental, you know, there were a lot of, there were those that, you know, they, 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 they're like, it's weird. You you see like cheesy stuff, like there are angels everywhere and this, I don't know about that stuff. I'm not very religious, but I do feel like there are people in this life that are just put there to, you know, they're there for their own purpose in their own life. But when they come into your life, they're very special and they're very important. And it could be for like a week or a day or a moment. And I've learned to cherish that because I've had some great people in my life. Yeah. And that's, that's important. Well, it's like, it's the people in your life. I mean, especially if you're going through hard times who are there as a, uh, as like a life raft. But then I think, and, and this is what your book speaks to and what we've talked about a bit already is that you have art. I mean, especially for people who wind up writing books and who fall into a, a literary life or some sort of artistic life or creative life. Like that stuff is, is, uh, is, is a rock when you're, you know, young and you don't necessarily have, uh, you know, a lot of guidance or direction or good examples at home or, Right. I mean, is that what, is that what you're yeah. kind of talking about? And, when... it, and it kind of goes into that earlier question that I didn't totally answer about, uh, what kept me going and what, you know, I'm, I'm really curious about everything. I'm, I look around and I'm like, man, I'm so fascinated by that. Like, uh, maybe it's the attention thing, the inability to pay attention for more than a few minutes, but I mean, I can actually pay attention. It's not like, I'm like, but you know, I can read a book in one sitting, um, but there, you know, there's this thing that I just like, I, I'm really curious about things. Um, and I'm really, I'm easily entertained. So, you know, there are things that just get me through the next five, 10, 20 minutes 
two days, three days. And, you know, I don't think about it. It's some, you know, it's not really like I'm going to read this long novel and that's going to help me survive. But it, you know, that's where you play. It's where you place your attention. Yeah. And it kind of numbs the, some people have drugs. I read a lot of books and watched a lot of movies and listened to a lot of music and yeah, it helped. So what, uh, like, and this was going on as, as in your adolescence, this is, this is what it was in high school and junior high. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. when you fell into it. Um, um yeah, and, you, and you got to college. Mm-hmm. That seems like a feat too. Yeah. I wasn't very good at college. I didn't, I kind of gave up pretty fast. Um, I mean, I ended up going back a couple of years later, but it just, where'd it you felt, go? I went to Northwestern. Okay. It kind of felt like same old thing, you know, it kind of just was like, why am I doing this? This is holding me back. I need to get out into the world and do things. And yeah, it was really stupid, but it's like I said, I was still 16 until I was 22, 23. What, what, what was, what changed it? What shifted just age, just age. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I I don't really like to, I always feel weird saying this, but you know, I, I met my wife when I was 29, 28. And that so, was, so by then you were like emotionally 24. It's like, perfect. Yeah, I was moving <laughs> up, uh, but I sort of, that really was like the, 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 I don't want to say the tipping point. That's always, I hate when people say that, but that sort of was like the moment where I'm like, Oh my God, someone loves me. Uh, and you know, I always feel so cheesy when I say that, but it was, it was really important because yeah. I had never felt loved. And finally I was like, Oh man, this is great. This is, I mean, it's not like that whole, like love it was, this is important. I have this now and it's beautiful. Um, you know, my wife constantly tells me that you don't let people love you. You don't like, let you, you just don't believe people love you. And I'm like, well, it's hard, but I believe you love me. And you know, that's good. Yeah. It's hard. Yeah. It makes sense that it would be hard. Yeah. It's been difficult. <laughs> um, like, do you still go to therapy for it? Oh yeah, you do. Oh, yes, big okay. fan of therapy. Yeah, I mean, because that you say you seem like you have, um, a good handle on it. You don't, you know, you know what I'm saying. It seems like you've done a lot of work on it. I feel like there's a, you have a depth of understanding and like some sort of some sort of peace with it. Yeah, I mean, and that's the thing. I had as a kid, I had an idea that there was one set way of like the good life. That this is how you want to live. This is how you want things to be. And, you know, you go to good school, you get a good job, you get married, you have kids. And that is sort of the path, I guess, that a lot of people go down. And that's great. It took me a little bit longer to get down a certain path where I can have some semblance of a normal life. And, you know, the John Hughes movie life is not obviously the, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a film, it's a movie, it's a, it's fiction. But I started kind of realizing like what I want for my life. I started visualizing it a little bit more and really kind of thinking about that and being like, okay, I have to do things for myself. I have to start really working on myself. And well, I yeah. think that that's like that part of it that maybe sometimes people lose sight of is that, you know, to, to have uh, a good life, whatever that happens to be or whatever that happens to mean for you. Like I think a lot of people can get really wrapped up in the professional side of it. Mm-hmm. And they can devote an enormous amount of energy and attention to that. And then they let the work that you, I think you also have to do and probably more so on yourself in tandem. Like you have to actually, I don't think there are people who are really, truly 
successful at what they do or have like a deep success who don't have a real understanding of themselves and haven't really done a lot of work on themselves. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, it does. And you know, I, it's kind of funny because like when I really started, you know, I really started trying to be a writer when I first moved to New York. So like 23, Which was 23. Okay. So still 16 ish, <laughs> 17, maybe if I'm being it's a respectable fair. lag. Yeah. Um, it's not so bad to be 17 forever. No. Um, and it probably actually don't, that's not true. It's probably terrible. <laughs> then you're basically like Brad Pitt's character from true romance and you're on the couch with the honey bear bong. But, um, no man. Yeah. Let's LA. You can probably pull that <laughs> off here. But, um, yeah, I, um, I don't know. I started really like, I, I started this website with, you know, and it, it just was like kind of like a hobby. And then slowly that turned into like the website being volume in Brooklyn. Right. And you know, it's, I, I never had any intention of making money off of it. You know, this was the time when people were starting blogs, <laughs> thought they were going to be millionaires and you know, I thought that was great. Um, but it's it sort of like, it kind of came out of like the punk rock DIY world that I came from. And it was like, I'm just going to do this cause I like this. And you know, I started seeing people responding to that. And while I saw people responding to this thing I was doing for, cause I cared, I was also realizing like, wow, I'm actually pretty good at writing now and I'm getting better as an editor and I'm getting better at this and I'm getting, but, and I just kind of slowly taught myself, you know, this is how you do it. And so you started volume one Brooklyn when, at, at what age? Uh, 27, 28. Okay. Right around before, right before, about a year before I met my wife. So yeah, 27, 28. And then, and that would be what year? Uh, that would be 2000. God, I'm so embarrassed. I have the dates. It's 2008. 2008. Yeah. Okay. And then, um, from that came like the awakening of, a like a literary ambition. I mean, I always had literary ambitions. I wanted to, I didn't go to school to be a writer. I just, for some reason I was, I was one of those, you know, I, I read like, you know, I started reading the beats when I was like 13 or 14 and then I started reading like Kathy Acker and Jim Carroll and all the punk stuff. And I was like, you don't need to go to school to write. And, <laughs> you know, I don't necessarily think you do, but I do know a lot of friends who have benefited from it. And in retrospect, I probably could have too. Um, did you finish college? No, you didn't No. So you, you, you jumped out of Northwestern after three, three two, years, two, uh, two and a half. Yeah. Well, that's... I went back to school though. A few years later, uh, for, I went to culinary school, uh, which was, uh, failed pretty miserably at that too. Why? Honestly, I just, I, I realized I had these, I had this idea that I could maybe do this. Like this was before Anthony Bourdain got really big, but I was like, maybe I could be this like literary chef guy. And cause I always wanted to write. That was the thing. Writing was the thing I wanted to do, but it just, I just, it, it, it became, it seemed like harder and harder and less, less doable. The more I lived in New York and the, poorer I was and the more people you meet who are do, trying to do it too. And like, <laughs> yeah, gets overwhelming. Yeah. I mean, you know, I started really, this was a few years before I did volume one, but I started kind of realizing like, you know, at that point I started kind of graduating from the stuff that I had grown up reading and, you know, moved past like the high school and college curriculum books and started picking up N plus one and started reading more lit journals. And soon there were all the websites that we know uh, and I was like, okay, there's a whole world here with this stuff. This is amazing. And, you know, I see how all these people are doing it. Um, and it's kind of cool. 
and I want to figure out how to do that, but I just don't know what I want to write. And I'm not, I'm not a good fiction writer. So I just kind of started carving out my own niches, like, um, nonfiction. Why, why do you think, uh, nonfiction is your thing as opposed to fiction? Um, because the story is already there and you just have to find a way to interpret it, reinterpret it. Uh, you have to find a way to write it. You have to find a way to make it interesting. Um, and I find that to be a nice challenge with, I mean, I, I love, I read tons of fiction. I read tons of fiction. Um, uh, I'm obsessed. I love, fiction is probably my first love. Um, but and maybe one day I'll try to do it again, but with nonfiction, I just find it, you know, you have to, you're, you are putting yourself in somewhat of a box, um, you know, figuring out why this works this way. Um, and trying to unlock that. And that's a challenge. I mean, like I said, I'm totally curious about things. And so if I'm interested in something, I want to write about it probably sooner or later. And you've got, you've probably got lots of stories to tell. Yeah. So one of the benefits of having, I think a difficult upbringing. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, initially the book wasn't going to be about, I didn't want it to be about the childhood stuff, but, um, <clears throat> excuse me, the editor we went with, uh, just said, I want to hear about your whole life. And I was like, no, why do you want to hear about that? That's uh. all sad. <laughs> She's like, that's exactly what we want to hear. Well, well, no, when I started working on the book, it, it started, you know, I'm like, oh, so this all kind of makes sense that I'm sort of obsessed with these movies still. I'm still obsessed with John Hughes movies. And I love other teen movies and you know, I love all of John Hughes's like the like John Candy films. But I started realizing like there's something here that connects back to that. And connects me, you know, it connects my, my, my upbringing and it, it connects my, my life. And, uh, it makes sense because I don't have a lot of connections. You know, I lost a lot of those when family started disappearing and friends started dying. You've had friends die. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I think it's kind of, it goes with the territory. If you, you know, hang out with, you know, weirdo kids, some kids get into drugs that stuff. Sure. I knew a couple of kids that killed themselves. Um, yeah, that sucks. I've had that happen. Yeah. It's rough. Um, you miss them. You kind of were like, what could have been with you? Yeah, exactly. That's the, that's the thing that really sticks with me. It's like, I had one friend who killed himself and I'm like, I think about him all the time. We weren't like that close, but we had been getting closer before, he did it. And I think about him every day. And it's so, cause I don't think about that many people every day, but I'm like, what could have been with him? Yeah. What could, I mean, maybe he would have done nothing, but who cares? He would have been alive. And right. I had a buddy like that. I had a buddy who took his own life in college and he was like, all the girls loved him. He was really good looking. He was fab. He was going to be fabulously wealthy. Like he had everything. Yeah. And you're just like, what the fuck? Uh, threw it away. Yeah. I, I, I never get that. I mean, um, yeah, I, I, I did the, the, the half-assed suicide attempt thing when I was a teen, um, just, you know, took a bunch of aspirin once or twice, but I never really wanted to die. I think there were times like when I was like, there were times in my life where I felt like dying. Um, and I'm obsessed with death. My, my shrink and I talk about this a lot, but not like I want it to happen. Just more like trying to figure out the whole bigger picture. Yeah. I'm the same way. I think, I, you know, I wrestle with this. Like you don't want to go overboard, but I think it's healthy. Oh yeah, absolutely. I don't think denial is the answer. I think you actually have to, I mean, the more, if you have a healthy awareness of death and even a daily awareness, 
like, I think that can make your life richer. You have some, uh, you have some, uh, it's good to have an understanding like that. This is temporary. And, uh, at least for me anyway, it yeah. gives, gives you a sense of like a healthy sense of urgency. I once, uh, I'm also a big Letterman fan, diehard. Cause I didn't sleep a lot as a kid. Uh, I was like, well, my dad let me stay up and watch with him. Uh, but you know, I watched Letterman through the end. And I remember when he had, this was like later on CBS years, uh, when Warren Zevon made his last appearance Yeah, and Warren Zevon, I think David Letterman asked him like, what's your advice? Um, and Warren, who oh, I love Warren Zevon. Yeah. And he goes, uh, enjoy every sandwich. Yeah. And I remember that. Yeah. It's an incredible thing. And you don't really, I do. I think about that all the time. I'm like, I need to make a crappy peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And I'm like, I'm going to enjoy this. This is going to be good. This is going to be good. Yes. <laughs> you know. Yeah. I, a few cultural figures. I was, I was very moved and upset when Letterman retired. He was, yeah. he really marked my entire life. Like there, there was something heroic about him. I know he could be, you know, uh, a difficult person and he, he certainly wasn't a perfect person, but, uh, I don't see anybody out there I'm trying to think of anybody who did it quite as well or was, uh, I don't know. There's something, there was greatness in him. I felt there was something about him, uh, there's this sort of like, I don't know if it's, I don't want to make it like a New York Jewish thing, but like you have like the Marx brothers and the Ramones and the beastie boys to me who are like funny, all anti-authoritarian. You, you kind of get it or you don't all three of I mean the beastie boys obviously and the Ramones are and the Marx brothers too, but David Lehrman kind of is in that club. Yeah. Like you either got, I mean, especially like the earlier stuff. Well, the, the whole thing though, I mean, it was like the first TV show ever that actively made fun of the fact that it was a TV show. Yeah. Like it just turned itself inside out. It was like, this is stupid. And like, it was just telling you constantly, like, <laughs> this is ridiculous. This is absurd that we have a show. Shows are absurd. TV's absurd. And it's just his grin, just that smile. And yeah. the fact that he looked kind of like Alfred E. Newman kind of makes it even better. I mean, well, and also his ability to, I mean, his ability to comedically, um, run an interview and especially when he was interviewing somebody that he was skewering yeah he was he was unbelievably good at that he was vicious yeah i mean you don't get it while you're watching it, exactly it, it was because it's one thing to just attack somebody yeah but he could do it he's getting laughs he's and he's like seems sort of folksy you know yeah. like um i miss that i think that's a lot of what i miss is that, like i felt like he was sort of he was sort of holding the line and you know, he's doing it on network television. So you're operating within the constraints of what you can do on network television, but you need uh, subversives in that tent. You know what I'm saying? You can't yield network television and, and those kinds of um, media spaces to straight arrows. You know what I'm saying? Like you need to have some clowns in that tent. I think they actually picked up on that, the networks and that's why you don't have them anymore. Uh -huh. That's why even SNL, you know, which I also love SNL. Yeah. Um, I think the, like the closest you have to it is probably like the Simpsons. I mean, those Simpsons, animated shows. Yeah. Yeah. Cause that, for some reason, cause it's not real, I think. And like, I don't love South park, but you know, they, they can do get it. away with more too. Yeah. Isn't that weird how it's been reduced to, it's largely reduced to cartoons. Yeah. It's really strange. And that's why I think cartoons have kind of like gotten more adult. Like that's why you have like adult swim and stuff like that, because you know, there are all kinds of people out there who are looking for those kinds of shows there aren't many left. It's sad. I mean, comedy obviously is going to be comedy, but yeah, Letterman was a big deal to me. Still oh, is, but sure. Um, yeah. So, okay. So let's talk about like the mechanics of you going from 
starting volume one Brooklyn to making it a profitable enterprise? No, no, never. Okay. I was going to be very impressed if you said yes, no. but you, at you least mean. making it, but you know, but making it into in whatever, um, niche way that it is a cultural force. Like I'm, I'm, I've been reading volume one Brooklyn for years. And, you know, I think a lot of the people who swim in, uh, the narrow literary channel online, we're all aware of certain sites. Mm-hmm. We've all been there. I mean, not that we, you know, it's not like you visit, you know, you don't have to visit a place every single day, right? but it's there. And like we're, it's a, you know, it's a form of community. Um, but you're also using it as kind of a testing ground, um, and a place to improve your writing and your editing. Yeah. Um, and then when do you start really getting down to the nitty gritty of writing books? Like, do you have novel? I mean, it sounds like you've tried fiction before and it didn't work. Do you have like novel in the, in the drawer? Do you have a book? that you wrote that didn't work. Yeah, I have a few. I, I've, I've, I've tried. Um, and you know, I think a lot of it was sort of, I mean, the, the, a big part of the book is me trying to write John Hughes's biography. Um, that's when I'm like in my early twenties and think you could just do it. You could just write a biography and that's definitely not what you can, you cannot just write a biography. Why not? Um, like in terms of getting access to people and yeah, just logistically, there's a lot you have to do you have to really be on your game and you have to, you know, I mean, obviously Robert Caro is sort of like the, the high watermark of all biographers. And, uh, what's his name? Who did the David Foster Wallace, DT Mac. DT Mac. I've had him on the show. Yeah. That's a, he's, he's a smart guy. It's a great biography. Um, it's a short biography. Yeah. But it fits so much in there. Yeah. It, it really is the only biography I think you need on him. Um, and that says a lot. Um, and then, uh, I got, I forget the other guy's name who did like the, the Yates one. He does all the big biographies. He's going to do the Philip, the big Philip Roth biography. Oh, but Blake Bailey. Yes. He's really great. So you see these people and just what they do. I was like, I'm just going to write a biography. Yeah, it's punk rock, dude. You know, it's like, it was literally just, it was just like jumping in and just trying to do it. So how far did you get? I wrote like 300 pages, but over like five years, do you interview people. Yeah. I talked to like minor people, like costume designers. Um, I tried to, sneak an interview with Joan Cusack through a job. Uh, I ended up pissing off my editor a lot by doing that. Um, nobody really big, um, tried flagging down Matthew Broderick on the street, tried talking. To were, you, were you like stall, like hanging out of his, outside of his house? No, 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 or no. You just saw just, him? no you, yeah, it's just New York. You know, yeah. it's like here, same thing. You just see celebrities and you try to leave them alone. Um, and I saw him and I was like, Hey, 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 hello, Hey, what's going on? I would never, ever do this. I'm not, I am so, I'm very Midwestern. I'm very like, I'm the same way. Yeah. But for some reason, I'm just got to do this, Jason, you got to do this. And he looked so scared and I felt really bad afterwards. (laughs) Um, but yeah, it was just not, just didn't work. And I didn't know what I was doing. Um, and yeah, I mean, I've tried to write other stuff. I've tried writing a novel and put it away because it was garbage. I'm not just saying that it was, um, and yeah, now I'm more focused on like, I want to write more books, but I got to kind of really chisel it out and, you know, do the whole thing, do, do the whole, putting together the whole outline, you know, do the research, figure out what I want. But you also have to, I think sometimes you got to go through false starts. You got to go through shitty books. You yeah. got to, you know what I'm saying? Like, that's kind of part of it. Cause like, look, you wrote 300 pages of an abandoned John Hughes biography and then wound up publishing a book. <laughs> It's largely about your affection for John Hughes. So like in some way, those 300 pages found their way in. I mean, that, that was a lot of foundational work one way or the other, right? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it, the pro like just chiseling out something 
Um, that was a big, you know, I mean, I, I learned later on how much that actually was a big lesson for me. And also it was a big lesson, you know, as a writer, you have to deal with failure. You have to deal with how do you deal? Are you good? Are you good at dealing with it with failure? I mean, does it, I mean, does it really get you down? I feel like maybe I'm going to, I'm just going to, uh, hazard a guess, but it's like, you've been through so much shit. Uh, that's so heavy, like getting rejected by a, by an editor like that. I feel like you could probably be like, well, you know, no, come back tomorrow. Yeah. You know, I have, I have a good work ethic and it's just like, gotta go back to work tomorrow. Sausage has to be made. Switches have to be turned on. (laughs) Bricks have to be laid. All that kind of cliche stuff. But, um, also I've never had a job like that. So I should feel feel like such a jerk saying that kind of stuff. But, (laughs) but no, I mean, I do. I do kind of, I let it roll off, but with, you know, like putting months into a book and then having it not pan out, that is hard. I'm not going to lie. It's frustrating. Yeah. But writing is frustrating. It's, it's like Tom Hanks in, in a league of their own with baseball He's like, if it was easy, everybody would do it. Yep. And that's why you hear so many people, you know, say, oh, I'd love to write. Yeah. And I, I want to be like, just write, go make a blog, go write, you know, and it, and I get it. It's not that easy, but oh, it's funny to me too. Like I listen to a lot of podcasts and I want, I love documentaries and I've noticed a pattern, um, over the years, but it's like, it's been hitting me a lot lately. I've just been getting a lot of these in, in interviews that I've read or listened to or watched where people who are super high achievers in whatever their field, uh, on like multiple occasions, they've been talking and they've mentioned that, like the one thing that's really fucking hard for them is writing. Yeah. Like they've written books and you know what I'm saying? They're like, that was brutal. Like yeah. these are people who've like overcome incredible odds and have, you know, risen to the challenge. But like writing is to, to write a book, to make it through that process, to face the blank page alone. That's a, you know, it's uniquely daunting or difficult. And, and when you really get into the nitty gritty of it, like it's just, there's no way to have it be not frustrating or not difficult or, you know, pure enjoyment you have to be able to grind through it and not a lot of people want to do that to themselves (laughs) yeah i mean i was thinking about you know how i had this idea when i was a kid i had all these ideas of what the world was like and i think i took them so seriously like like with the movies obviously is one thing but i also had this idea that there was a there was a, a a certain kind of writer like you had a writer and that could be philip roth it could be mary mccarthy it could be james baldwin it could be you know the very smart reserved everything they say is brilliant literally everything they think is brilliant and early on i was like i am definitely i'm very smart and i always you know i've always known that but i'm not like that like i don't say smart things all the time i say a lot of dumb crap right and um you know once i kind of started realizing that writers aren't these untouchable and i think a lot of this also has to do with that you know once you started seeing writers on twitter more and you started seeing writers read a literary biography. Yeah. It's always a shit show. You're like, Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> this is messy. That took me a while to start reading those and like realizing it's like, you know, no one's perfect. Writers definitely are not perfect. And I started shedding that idea of like what a writer is. You know, I don't, I see, you know, I don't wear suits to my readings and I don't, you know, swirl my martini or my wine around. And that's so like, did you read that uh, essay that Brady's Finellis wrote for the daily beast? I think it was about like pre empire and post empire. Yeah, oh yeah, Of course. Yeah. That's very pre empire or yeah. that, or, or that's empire. And then there's post empire. Right. But he was like, you know, there, whatever 20th, like mid 20th century or, you know, early to mid 20th century affectations that 
literary people had, and I guess maybe some people hung on to. We're definitely not in that world anymore. Uh, yeah. I mean, there may be some people who want to like still have a martini and like, you know, smoke their cigarette in a cigarette holder and, you know, yeah. but I mean, like, I don't know. I think, uh, I think it's just a different landscape now. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I think I grew up just when you just saw the last vestiges of that. Me too. So you would, yeah, you would watch TV and you would, you see a, t- a, a, a literary party in New York or what, I don't know what you would watch, but you'd see this kind of thing. And you had this idea that everything looked like George Plimpton's house. Well, you're also reading because at that time of your life, you know, uh, you're reading all the academic books, all the books that you're assigned to read in school and all of it is, uh, old, yeah. <laughs> you know? So I think a lot of my literary ideas and pretensions coming out of college were rooted in the past. That was a big mistake that I made. Like I didn't have a, a clear idea of the current landscape, like at all. Like I had no idea what advances were. I had no idea you know, how the actual business of publishing worked. I just had this like dream of it that was derived from reading, you know, uh, novels of the early to mid 20th century. And that's back when people could like make a living writing like a one short story every two months. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. That's exactly. And, and a I good mean. living, you know? Right. Yeah. I mean, you hear about like, I was reading something about like JD Salinger when he was trying to write it, when he was just writing the short stories and he seemed pretty, I mean, he was already, he came from money, but he seemed pretty well off. He seemed okay. And, you know, now I have a lot of, you know, I, I, I I consider myself lucky that I kind of came up in this time when, you know, I see like all these writers who are like, like the rumpus or HTML giant, you know, all those sites, you know, the nervous breakdown, all these sites that we're connected with, you know, I've seen people connected to these things and how they've operated. And I'm really fascinated that, you know, we're sort of redefined. I, I don't want to make this grandiose thing, but I do feel like one day, you know, if my name is ever mentioned in a history book, for some reason, it'll be because I had this small part in this bigger thing where right. we're sort of, yeah, it sounds so corny that I'm even saying, but like redefining how writers, you know, making it real. I mean, making it available to people. And, um, I think that's kind of a big problem we've had in this country for a long time is that the, the novel or, you know, the short story or poetry or philosophy, it was, it seems so out of reach. And so to this day, you still hear people say, Oh, novels are elitist and this and that, because they were, and now they're not because you're seeing all kinds of people. You're seeing black people, Latino people, immigrant people, you know, first generation people write novels, write poetry. You know, you're seeing translated literature come over here more and that's incredible. And it's becoming, I think that's good. That's important. And, you know, I'm glad that I got to, I'm able to witness that. Well, yeah. And also like, you know, it's also a time when there's been a democratization of, um, access, you know, like like the ability to just start a magazine online at a very low cost. Um, you know, that's not something that one could do even, you know, 25 years ago. Yeah. So, you know, that, and then the same, the barrier to entry in film and television is the same. You can go get a camera, uh, get some microphones, gather some actor friends together and make a movie. Do the YouTube. Yeah. I mean, but I mean, at a, a, like nowadays at a pretty, if you know what you're doing and you, and you do your homework a little bit at a pretty high level of, uh, production value, you know? So I think that what that does is it opens the doors to a lot more people. And then you have the connectivity of social media and just the basic connectivity of the internet. Um, so 
not only does it make forming at least virtual communities uh, easier to do and to open the gates of publishing wider to people who might not have felt like they had access or entree to it previously, um, but I think it also makes the processes the processes by which the sausage is made, to continue your metaphor, yeah, a uh, great metaphor. It, it makes those processes more transparent yeah. and not just in literature, but I think it, across all the arts. And that's interesting to me. Like we all sort of know, I feel like we, I know more about how uh, film and, you know, films are made because of the internet, or I feel like if you want to find out, it's very easy to, you know what I'm saying? Like people kind of show you and you can kind of take an x-ray of just about anything on the internet in a matter of seconds. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I can't say enough good things about the internet. I know it's garbage. I know you could say like, Oh, it, you know, fake news is terrible. And the people on Twitter are terrible. And yes, that's all true. But I really think I got to the, uh, the internet, uh, came into my life, became a big part of my life at the right time. You know, AOL chat, you know, I needed to see that there were other weird kids out there and I could talk to them and that saved, I really think that's one of the things that saved my life. And then later on, you know, it, it showed me that I could be a writer. It showed me that I could, you know, be an, it showed me all these things I never thought possible. And, um, you just had to sort of not listen to people that were like, it's a fad. You shouldn't meet people off the internet. Everybody I know I've met off the internet, um, you know, it's important. And I think that's a great thing. It's, it's not all bad. It's just a tool. Yeah. Depends how you use it. It's just a very big tool that everyone has in their phones now. And it's very scary. Yeah, um, I know. Like, it's like, I, I think about privacy and I think about like how many different places I've given my phone number <laughs> out and, you know, you start to get into all that stuff and it starts to get creepy, but it's like, you know, at a certain point, yeah, I, I think know. I'm at that point where I've just written so much and tweeted so much and yeah, I'm like, what do you, what do you want? What yeah. Are, what are you going to do? I guess you can delete your accounts, yeah. but then it's still out there somewhere, right? They'll, on figure, some, they'll figure out how to find it. Yeah. It's on some drive somewhere. Yeah. But you're not running for office anytime soon. What do you, you see? That's the thing I always say. I'm like, never wanted to be a politician. I have, I openly admit to my mistakes and I'm fine with them and that's great. What are you going to do? Put me in jail for, yeah doing acid when I was like 14, you know, <laughs> now I did it. I'll tweet about it. It was hilarious. Um, yeah. So, so, uh, what about getting your book published, finding your agent? Well, you know, you, you obviously, um, figured out what, you know, what you wanted to write. You did the hard work of outlining. It sounds like you do that before. Um, actually with my agent, I think he, who's your agent? Uh, his name is William Callahan. He's at, uh, Inkwell. He's, he's great. Um, Every writer loves their agent. I love my agent. They I, he is so the op. He's from Iowa, which I he's a good Midwesterner. So I'm like, okay, I like you. He's a Cubs fan, so that's important. A lot um, of Cubs fans in Iowa. Yeah, because the Iowa Cubs. And, oh, is that the, that's where the farm team is? Yeah, and also okay. the, it's close to Chicago. Yeah, yeah. Um, there are also a lot of Bears fans there. Um, but uh, he's a great guy. He's he's very calm. And he's very like calculating. He's, you know, he's good. He's an agent. He's very smart. He's a good editor. He's good at like, you should rework this and here. And that's a nice thing. It's good to have somebody like that. Like and, sober advice. Yeah. He's very sobering. Um, but we, you know, we had a meeting and I was like, yeah, I'm going to go with this guy. You know, I'd talked to other agents and I just didn't feel comfortable. Um, on the basis of what, like you had a pitch or you had a proposal or you had just the reputation you'd build in the literary community with, with him. It was that it was just, I think he knew who I was. I was at flavor wire at the time. I was the literary editor. 
and you know, I had an idea and I was like, you know, I'd like to talk about this idea and it was a totally different book. It was, um, more of a, a cultural history had nothing to do with what I ended up writing. I ended up writing a piece sort of based around it recently. Um, but it was, you know, a 5,000 word piece opposed to an 80, 90,000 word book. And so we went out to drinks and we started talking about, it and he thought it was a great idea. And, you know, he kept working on the proposal and working on the proposal. And eventually it just did not, some people wanted it, but they didn't, they wanted something totally different than what I wanted to do. And finally we're like, we, we should revisit this one day. Maybe it's not right right now. And he, you know, I was really, you know, the last publisher passed and I remember we were on the phone. It was a hot August day. I was really miserable at my job. And he's like, what do you want to do next? And I was like, Oh, what? You're going to not going to like leave me now. You're not going <laughs> to. And I literally, that's the moment where I started thinking about the time I tried to write a John Hughes biography. And I'm like, I failed that, you know, maybe I should turn that into something. Cause I've always, you know, this, I, I kind of kept thinking about it up until our next meeting. And, uh, I, I've kind of repeated this a few times, but I'm really, I've always been obsessed with like Confederacy of Dunces yeah. and Oblomov and, uh, Don Quixote is like my, one of my favorite, just anything's. I mean, just to say it's like your favorite novel is to be like, you know, I've never, really, I've never read it. It's incredible. I mean, but it's like saying the Model T is my favorite car. It's like kind of weird. Um, <laughs> Cause it's so important into our, in our culture. But, um, I started thinking about those characters and I started thinking about like, uh, Larry David, I'm a big Larry David fan. Me obviously. Too. Yeah. And I started thinking about just like all these things, just like these people who are like bumbling through the world and who think they're right and who think what they're doing is good. And I was kind of like that at a point I realized, and I'm like, how do I write that about myself? How do I make myself that care? It's so easy because I was, and so I, that was kind of the idea going into the book. It was like, you're that sort of, I, I don't want to say un, unreliable narrator. Cause yeah, I guess I was pretty reliable in a way, but you know, failing and not kind of realizing that you're failing and you think you're doing something really important and big and, <laughs> uh, it's you like know, story of my life. Right. Yeah. It's all, yeah, it's, it's writing. It's, it's this world we, but when you're a 23 year old living in New York and, working coffee shop jobs. There's something kind of sweet and also kind of sad about it. Um, and also the fact that I was just like this really pretentious, you know, I'm, I, I like what I like. And if yeah. you don't like what I like, then sorry. But like, do you, do you like, would you, were you one of those people who, uh, huge music collection? Yeah. Like encyclopedic knowledge of the shit that you liked and very strong opinions. Yeah. I'm still that way. Yeah. I mean, I, I can go to like Amoeba. I, I, before I came here, I went to Amoeba. Of course. I'm yeah. like, I'm cool with Amoeba. I love Amoeba. I'm like, this is good. Bookstores, any bookstore, I'm pretty much... I've been in some bookstores. I'm like, this is a crappy selection. Uh, I feel bad, but... But yeah, I mean, I'm, I like what I like. And, you know, I'm constantly finding things I like. But the things I've loved for 10, 20, 30 years of my life now... John Hughes movies, 80s hardcore... The Cubs. hip-hop. Yeah, the Cubs, which... Congratulations. Thank you. I actually had, had... Did you weep when they won? Yes. You I did. was on the floor. Where, where did you watch it? I watched all of the games at home. Because, because it's a too, to be at a bar is too much. Yeah. I mean, my mom's family, they're, uh, the joke is they're old money Jews. They're not old money, but they've been in America longer. 
uh, they've been since like the, I had a friend, I have a friend who's from a Jew from uh, Minneapolis. Yeah. There's a lot of them from there. And they, the joke up there is they call themselves the frozen chosen. The frozen. I think I've actually heard that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah but my family, my mom's family have been in North Chicago, the North side of Chicago for years. So, I mean, there was one great grand, great, great grandfather who didn't, who spoke Yiddish, but knew the Cubs and loved the Cubs and never see them, saw them won. Never got to see them win. And pardon me. Um, and my grandfather, my mom's dad, who I was really close with, who died when I was 12, right around with my dad. <laughs> uh, the last thing we talked about on the phone was the Cubs. And, you know, I, my wife, you know, my, my day job is I'm a sports editor at, at a magazine. And, uh, at Rolling Stone, right? Yeah. And my wife hates sports. She doesn't like me. There's no sports yelling in the house. I, I have this weird obsession with sports where I, I love sports. Yeah. But you know, there's so many people who are like, oh, sports are stupid. Fuck I mean, that. Yeah. I'm like, if you think about sports, it's totally different. And, and, and it's also, yeah, I mean, it's like, and baseball is very cerebral, but it's also a oh, situation yeah. where, um, you know, it's, it's the antithesis, especially for writers. These are people who are like, what we do is so cerebral. It's all in your skull. And like, you know, you're working with your feelings and your thoughts and all this stuff. And like, when you're watching great athletes, like they're, they're, it's all about being in your body and like being out, out of your head. Yeah. And, uh, I don't know. I find so, it's kind of a relief and I find it like a great fascination, but I also think it's like, it's the original and, and still the greatest reality TV. Like if you're watching like the world series and a high drama, high stakes sporting <laughs> event, like, I don't care if you're not a fan, like how can you not be, it's, it's gripping. Well, everybody I know who's not a fan was watching that. Oh man. It was, it was, I mean, it's the greatest baseball game of all time. It's fabulous. Um, but the thing I always say, you know, at the end of the day, I mean, sports tells us a lot about society, whether or not we want to admit it, um, you know, be it racially, socially, economically, there's so much we can get out of sports. And I'm, I'm fascinated by those stories. And that's what I push my, my writers to do is like, look for stories. I'm like, I don't care about box scores. I don't care about trades. I'm like, find me a story. And that's cool. But the, you know, what you're saying about writers being cerebral, I mean, I'm not going to go, go to bat or sorry, I'm going to use that phrase for sports, but <laughs> I'm not going to go to bat for John Updike. I mean, I think he was a great writer. I don't really like a lot of his stuff, but, uh, uh, kid bids hub fans ado. the piece he wrote about Ted Williams, his last game for the New Yorker. One of the greatest things I've ever read. Uh, do you ever read uh, underworld by Delilah? Yeah. Oh yeah. Of course. The opening like hundred pages about the shot heard around the world. And then also, I mean, what is it? End zone. Yeah. I didn't read end zone, but yeah, it's good. And Amazon's the, the hockey book he wrote. Do you know that one? No. He wrote it under a pseudonym. He wrote it. It's a, it's the biography of the first female hockey player. Huh? And it's a Don DeLillo novel. Huh? And he, he won't even talk about it, but he's written about sports for sports illustrated. And, um, some of our greatest writers have written some of their best stuff. Well, and then, uh, I think of David Foster Wallace writing about like Tracy Austin. Yep. Uh, his tennis writing is, is, is wonderful. I, I love his tennis writing Yeah, and I'm not, I'm not the biggest, I'm, I always say this and I feel bad. I'm not the biggest fan of his fiction. I'm not either. Yeah. Good. I'm good. not either. I, I have a hard so time. And like, just in the sense that like, I, 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 I have a hard time getting through it. Whereas I devour the nonfiction. Yeah, exactly. I and, devour it. And maybe that means that like the fiction is challenging me and I'm too lazy minded or something, but like whatever it is, like. I, I have read every, I think I've read every word of his nonfiction and I've tried to read infinite jest, like God knows how many times. And I just, can't, I mean, I admire it. I, yeah. I know that it's, I understand based on the amount of pages that I've read, like this is, 
and he's operating it like another gear intellectually and it's beautifully written. I mean, I understand why the, why there's a big fuss, but like I've never been able to grind it out. Maybe one day. I think the tennis stuff is so appealing to me and to most other people because what you're seeing is you're seeing him at his more honest level because he's such a tennis fan. Yeah. And I, I really like that, you know, because you're seeing like the kid, you're seeing like the young Dave, whatever he was probably called when he was a kid. You're seeing that kid from some bum, some town in Illinois, wherever he's from. Champagne. That's, yeah, Champagne. You're seeing that love and that 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 obsession kind of come to the surface, and it's it, also, but it's also for like the reasons I was alluding to earlier. It's like the perfect match because you have this thing that's sort of defined. He talks about this. You like this is why sports biography or sports autobiographies are often so disappointing because athletes cannot verbalize. This is why sports commentary on television often bums me out or the immediate like post-game interviews yeah. where it's like, well, we just, you know, we played defense and we held them, you know, we didn't let them score and then we scored and that's why we won. And you're just like, wow, that was just the empty, like they don't <laughs> like, it's very hard for athletes to verbalize, not because they're, they're dumb, but because what they do is just so, uh, it, it doesn't involve thought. <laughs> I've interviewed a fair share of athletes and I can tell you that I also know their agents. Um, I mean, it's my job. Yeah. Um, and I find this endlessly fast. I won't do it anymore. I will always, unless it's like somebody's like, you can have 10 minutes with Michael Jordan or you can, like, who's like my hero. Cause yeah, sure. Chicago, but there's like maybe like five people I'd care to write to talk to, but they are, I mean, especially with like the NBA, the minute you're drafted, you start going to media training. It's like a right. thing. They right. start teaching you that. And, you know, you get some guys here and there and, you know, Serena's great. I love hearing Serena talk cause she doesn't, she doesn't have to care. She's the greatest ever. Um, and she knows it and she's going to say what she wants. And, but there, and there are also some athletes to counterpoint what I just said. There are some athletes who are, um, who actually can talk beautifully about it and are yeah. deeply reflective. I mean, it's just, it's not the norm I find, you yeah. know, and maybe that's because they've been media trained out of it or they keep that stuff to themselves. But um, it, I think it's, I think it's actually natural and normal to not be able to really articulate exactly what you did. If you're that gifted physically, I mean, I know you're thinking out there on the court and that there are cerebral elements to any sport and you have to be, you have to have your wits about you to be successful. But when you're actually running at top speed, you know, in the middle of a athletic play, you, you know, you're not neurotic in the way that writers are neurotic. That's <laughs> my favorite thing with the NBA finals. I'm a huge basketball nerd. Yeah, me too. Um, watching J.R. Smith as post game conference, just, you know, and this J.R. Smith, the guy is like, you don't know what you're getting one night to the next. Yeah. That's kind of what I love about him. But I mean, he was just, he was just getting choked up and it was honest and it was real. And I'm like, we don't have this in, in society that much. You know, we, I remember when this is a weird comparison. But I remember when John Banner started crying in public and people were like, this is a new era where a man, a Republican from the Midwest is crying, uh, and openly crying. Uh, and I was like, that's whatever. I mean, dudes cry, but there is something to me that's so incredible when, you know, you see Michael Jordan on the floor crying his eyes out. You see LeBron James crying his eyes out. You know, that's, that to me is very real. And it's very, you know, that's, they put everything. I mean, I, you, I've done like, I've done like training set, I, you know, with like, I did like uh, like the uh, pregame training with like the Warriors trainer, and I'm like, I was gonna, I threw up, I was like gonna die. 
And just that much, you know, we, we think it looks simple and we can do it. And that's the whole thing with baseball. It's like, it looks so simple that you can, but you can't No. And these guys really, they're pushing their bodies. And then once they hit that goal and I, I, you know, they just, and the amount of pressure they feel, you know, especially if you're LeBron and you have like the entire state of Ohio, you know, just like this sort of, uh, I don't know. I mean, like the pressures go beyond sports. Do you know what I'm saying? Like there's like socioeconomics involved yeah. and, you know, class and race and all this stuff. Like it all factors in. And then you're, he's been the chosen, like what I always say about LeBron James. Um, and then I'll let you go. I know you yeah. probably got to be somewhere, but, yeah. um, I could talk about sports for a while, but <laughs> what I always say about LeBron James is that it's amazing to me how he's not a huge asshole. Yeah. Like here's a guy who grew up without a father, who's got this incredible talent, who's been, pretty much having his ass kissed, or at least he's been a superstar since he was like 12. Yeah, since he was a kid. And when he was 18, I want to say got a, a check for $100 million, something like that. Yeah. I mean... In his hometown. Yeah. I mean, it's I, almost Dickensian in a way. Like. Yeah. And it's, so it's like, how did he not turn out to be... I mean, because that could destroy... Uh, that, that, that would have fucked me up. <laughs> I mean, you know, I don't think I can't, I mean, who knows how I would have handled it. It's hard to, to, you know, it's hard to know, but it seems like the kind of thing that would, that would screw up most mortals. I was pissed at all. Uh, all I feel bad talking this much about LeBron, but I will say that, you know, I was, I thought the, the heat thing was pretty, I, I didn't like the, what going, the decision. Yeah. I thought the, the way he did it. Yeah, I agree. All that. But if that's the worst mistake the guy ever made. Yeah. Yeah, and then I remember being like, I was still holding on to the, he's not like Mike, he's not Michael Jordan, you can't, but that's that's me, that's my pride, like, because I love Michael Jordan so much, uh, like, my wife won't let me name a kid Jordan, that's, that's out of the picture, <laughs> uh, and she won't let me name him Kyle Schwarber, Diamond, <laughs> um, but, um, but I remember when we went back to the Cavs, I was like, this is unprecedented. Nobody goes back, especially to their old team, especially to their hometown in the prime of their career. And everything about it got me thinking. I'm like, I got to let this whole thing with the best ever go. Like Michael's Michael Jordan transcended sports, not just basketball, but sports. And you only transcend things once. You're not going to have just like Babe Ruth transcended it. And Muhammad Ali transcended it. You only do that. You have one person do that for each sport. And LeBron, what I've realized is, this is the simplest way I could put it. LeBron could would crush Michael in a one-on-one game. You put Michael in the, his best Bulls squad against LeBron in any squad. I don't care if it's the Heat. Michael's going to win. He'll figure out a way to win. But the one-on-one thing, LeBron is the greatest at what he does. Like his physical skills. Yeah. yeah. That block last year. Yeah. Who cares? I mean, Hakeem could block. You know, you'd love to see Hakeem block. That was cool. You know, big center just swatting the ball, but LeBron just, I, I was like, that is like literally like watching a, I've seen a hawk swoop <laughs> down and just, I was like, that was cool. I just saw a hawk just take a squirrel off the ground. Yeah. And that was literally the same thing. And it was like, that's nature. That is so terrifying. Um, it makes, and it looks so easy. It looks so graceful. looks like, oh, this is just me. But I mean, and he's built like a mom. He's a, I've seen him in person. He is. Yeah. He's a tank. Yeah. He's a tank, man. Yeah, well, he's fun. That's cool. Uh, it's been so I could keep talking. Yeah, but uh, sorry, turned no. into the sports podcast. No, it's good. I like it. Uh, it's great to meet you. Yeah, I've admired uh, what you do from afar for a while. I'm psyched for you in this book. Congratulations. Thanks, man. And uh, best of luck on whatever comes next. Awesome. Thank you so much for letting me on. 
All right, guys, there you go. That's Jason Diamond. His book is called Searching for John Hughes. It's a memoir out now in trade paperback from William Morrow. You can find him online at jasondiamond.net. He's on Twitter. His handle over there is at I'm Jason Diamond. He's on Instagram. Go check him out. Jason Diamond, the book one more time is called Searching for John Hughes. Thanks, as always, to Kill Rockstars for the music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Don't forget about the app, this podcast. The Other People with Brad Listy podcast has its own app. The app is free. It's the Other People with Brad Listy app. Go get it wherever you get your apps. It's free. You download the, dev- uh, the app onto your device. When you do that, the most recent 50 episodes will be there waiting for you free of charge. You get the most recent 50 for free. And then if you want to access the full archives, more than 440 episodes and counting, including my conversations with writers like George Saunders, Cheryl Strayed, Roxanne Gay, Jonathan Lethem, Tom Parada, Susan Orlean, etc., etc., you can just sign up for a premium subscription right there within the app. It costs as little as 75 cents a month. 75 cents a month gets you access to everything. Anywhere you go at your fingertips. You can also support this podcast over at Patreon dot com slash other ppl pod patreon you can uh you know you make like a three dollar you just make a donation that that happens every month support the show it's a very nice thing to do i would appreciate it personally if you want to email me the address is letters at other ppl.com letters at other ppl.com let me know what you think i always love hearing from people So, yeah, I, you know, it's really hard for me to even, like, think about or talk about anything unrelated to what's happening and what's about to happen in this country. It is not good. So fucking disgraceful and disturbing. Stupid. The media's got a hell of a job to do. Like the political media in particular our major media institutions, and and we need to support them in that work. You know? People deserve to be informed. We need to have a reestablishment of of facts. There need to be facts that we can all agree on. How do we get back to facts? I don't know. This, you know, post-fact universe we live in with fake news... It's a bunch of bullshit. Forgot to turn off the uh, fucking refrigerators. If you heard a buzzing, it's the refrigerators. <laughs> uh, just, you know, it's a lot to process. And uh, I think we just need to keep talking. And whenever possible, take action nonviolently. Civil disobedience. Call your local representatives. Get involved locally. Stand up for uh, people who, uh, you know, are in targeted communities or in disadvantaged communities who might need help. I'm talking to myself here as much as I'm talking to you. You know, like what to do. Action plans. So, anyway... Uh, it's good to be with you. Thanks for listening. Thanks to Jason Diamond. Go get searching for John Hughes. 
available now from William Morrow paperbacks. And uh, I'll be back next week. We're getting ready uh, for the holiday episode. I just had the holiday party over here the other night. I have yet to listen to the tape. I don't know what we got, (laughs) but uh, you're going to find out. I'm going to find out. I think I'll share it. Let me just see what we have. Let me, I have an, I have another episode coming next week. We'll see what it's going to be. Okay. All right. (laughs) 